0: welcome to Pandora's box yet again ladies and gentlemen we've got uh, we're welcoming a special guest back on the show today um, Hamilton Souther um, we've had Hamilton on the show before a couple of months ago if you missed that episode um, you can find it on Spotify or YouTube just look up Pandora's box uh, podcast and for people that aren't familiar with uh, Hamilton, Hamilton has a bachelor's degree in anthropology and has studied shamanism in California, Cusco and the Amazon. Hamilton was given the title of Master Shaman by Alberto Torres Davila and uh, Julio Lorena Pinedo after completing an apprenticeship under Alberto and Julio. He guides ceremonies and leads shamanic workshops in which he shares his universal spiritual philosophy. Thanks for coming back on the show, Hamilton.
1: Uh, thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I hope all that information was right, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right, right enough yeah it's amazing how many times like i was like say something like that and i'm like sort of like you know trusting the information i can gather off the internet and then somebody will say like that's actually not right and i'm like ah, oh. <laughs> <Like, laughs> don't 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 like shoot shoot me i'm like i'm just sort of like trying to find what i can on online you know um but yeah how, how's everything been how's everything in in peru right now everything's great
1: peru is an uh, amazing place um It's always dynamic and changing like most places in the world. We're obviously, Mm -hmm. the whole world's in a tremendous evolution right now. But Peru's great, and uh, Blue Morpho is stronger than ever. It's my organization dedicated to all of these things, plant medicine, consciousness, philosophy, and uh, the improvement of, of life in general. So that's all going great. We just launched a mystery school, which is an exciting development for us. It's something I've been doing in private for a number of years and thought it was time to open it to the public or students asked for it they said we want a real world hogwarts we want uh x-men training wow. school where where does this exist oh, and i said oh well right here so uh we just got that together did and launched it this week so that's been an exciting development
0: did you say it's called mystery
1: school yeah it's just mystery school
0: that's that's such an epic name in itself i already almost like one on one list so so uh, what do you do at mystery school or is it a mystery <laughs> uh,
1: it's, a, it's a huge mystery um Mystery School is about studying the mysteries of the universe, but it starts with you. You're the most mysterious thing, I think, about this universe. So we start with your personal growth and development. And when people work with sacred plants and they work with spiritual practices, uh, the first thing that happens is that their life goes through an accelerated evolution and change. And so we give context and support for that. We help people channel that and canalize it in a way that's positive for them. Uh, there's direct mentorship around people's you know personal path of development, and then that of course leads to greater esoteric questions. It opens up Pandora's box of the mind and you lead, well, how'd I get here woo!
0: and, and, woo! Yeah.
1: and, uh, and <laughs> you know what is the universe and and what happened before big Bang if you believe in that or what is God? these kind of questions that naturally mm. come up uh, you know or you know should I have toast or a smoothie on a Sunday? these big mm. esoteric <laughs> questions what,
0: what, so yeah, what do you think happened that. before? What do you think happened before the Big Bang, Hamilton?
1: So that's a that's a good question to ask. I <laughs> it's a should, really loaded question. You should question answer now, that yeah. inside the, the mystery school. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think I think source or God happened before the Big Bang, and mm-hmm. that that's another evolution of this phenomena that we call the universe. And that there's universe before it and universe after it, but the universe before it is a very different universe. It's one that isn't defined by the dimensionality of time. It one that isn't uh, the same expression of matter the way that we see it now uh, it leads to the formation of spiral galaxies and planets and ultimately creatures like us, you know, which is quite fascinating. Um, so I just think it was another form of source and that source is evolving or God.
0: Hmm. I, know, I know we talked a lot about this sort of thing um, on, on the podcast and on the radio last time, but just to refresh my memory and for people listening as well. Um, so when you say there was like a God, um, so you you believe in, in a, a entity like that you would call God? So that's a loaded question as well. Like the way that you yeah, ask question, like, questions, it's like
1: hit me right off the bat. You
0: know, no, how are we supposed to <laughs> take deal it, with it? Take it as a compliment rather than <laughs> anything you. else. I'm not expect, and I'm not mm. expecting you to necessarily to uh, to to say know all these answers. I'm just interested yeah. in your thoughts. Absolutely, uh,
1: I don't believe in a God. I believe in God, mm. and you have to remove sure, the sure. idea of a from it. It's it's not a God. It's God. But you have to understand that my definition of God is a very expanded definition. So I include the whole universe in that definition. Mm -hmm. I include the Milky Way galaxy in it, and I include the planet earth. And I include life within that definition. Mm -hmm. So I prove to myself the existence of quote, God, not a God, but God Mm -hmm. in the existence of the universe. And I don't think that that universe is in debate. We are made of it. It's Mm -hmm. us. It's part of us. And so that to me is what God is. Now there may be a whole lot more going on about God that extends beyond my ability to perceive as part of the universe, but I don't need to know what that is to know that the phenomena exists. And it's the more you explore it, the more interesting it becomes.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a very sort of wise way to look at things as well, because I, and I also think you're avoiding almost, I think we talked about this a bit last time, that almost... Um, you know, that that putting yourself into a box or into like a, almost like a team, you see that often with, with everything in life, unfortunately, you know, whether it's like mods and rockers back in the day with music or, you know, let's face it, like religious warfare is just a thing that has been like, a, you know, it's been a thing almost for, since the dawn of time. So you're almost like it's, it's a way of almost like avo- avoiding that as well, isn't it? You know, well, I just don't
1: see any purpose in that. I think that Not religious wars are, are really old wars. And I don't believe Mm -hmm. in history, the concept that the wars ever came to an end, because as I studied history, it seemed like they rolled right in to Mm -hmm. the next one. So it's like, well... You know, did the day really end? Is it really rolled right into the next day that rolled right into the next day? It seems like this conflict that we have as a species is an ancestral problem. It's a deep ancestral problem, maybe hundreds of thousands of years old. And we see yeah. the emergence of these religious wars, which is fighting over our ideologies or fighting over our beliefs about this place and about existing. And I don't, uh, I think it might be overly simplistic considering the, the level of complexities and, and convolutions in today's versions of religious wars. But I just don't see a whole lot of purpose in that. Um, mm. It's necessary evolutionarily to transcend it at some point. So when I when I think of these things, like, I don't think we're fighting about the existence of the universe. And so I try to find universal anchors that provide greater context and a better understanding for me personally about life itself and yeah. what we're doing, why we're alive and how to live our lives. It's sort of like a North star a guiding point to understand that uh, if there's a greater context to the universe, if it's not just this dead empty matter with little blips of life, like us talking um, there's greater context for that. And I think that that's important.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, a hundred percent, man. And I think, I think like for myself as somebody that is, um, you know, not like strictly religious, but is open-minded to uh, and open to sort of any possibilities um, I think oftentimes as well, which, which almost seems crazy as an outsider perspective when you do see sort of like, um, you know, like wars and squabbles between different religions as well. It's like often often these re- religions, like the, the differences between them are, are so trivial in themselves. Like almost, they're basically the, almost at like the same thing. So to, to almost like be so aggressive towards each other in itself, I know it's, it's probably a funny way to put it. But it almost just seems like a shame, you know? I think it
1: is a shame. Uh, I think any human group hurting another human human group is a shame. And yeah. I think at some point we have to collectively ask ourselves the question, when did we mature evolutionarily, like collectively beyond that, like beyond that shame? And mm-hmm. I, I feel it that way. It's a mar on our species that, yes, we're a predator species. Yes, we're, a, a, you know, apex predator currently, maybe not for a long time longer, guys, like we might have to wake up to that, too. But for a period mm-hmm. of time, we've been this dominant kind of predator. And it seems like we ran out of things to predate on. So we just turned on each other. Mm-hmm. And at some point we have to wake up to that and think like, wow, the, the Earth is really small for 10 billion, then 15 billion, then 20 billion humans to all be like mm. consuming each other and killing each other. That's just a, a terrible way to live. And uh, yeah. I think it's, we have to wake up from that at some point.
0: Uh, you said something really interesting a, a second ago. You said that you, you thought we might have to wake up to the possibility that we're not going to be uh, an apex predator for much longer. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think Earth is in a tremendous evolution and Earth is evolving faster than humans know what to do with it, including Earth's use of humans to create everything that humans creating. So I think it's Mm -hmm. I, I think it's completely ridiculous to think that humans are creating things independent of the Earth when you're made of the Earth, think of the Earth, talk of the Earth, drink the Earth, breathe the Earth, eat the Earth and utilize yeah. the earth's matter to make all your creations whether it's a microphone or a chair or a building or a city it doesn't matter you're you're transforming the earth when you do that so i look at that from a perspective wow that's part of earth doing that too and um mm. so when i think of that i think of artificial intelligence i think of quantum computing i think of this pro- prophesized singularity event coming of this convergence of mm. intelligence and linguistics and uh, you know, satellite clusters all around the earth and ex- all these things coming together and realizing that uh, we're going to be very quickly eclipsed both in intelligence, creativity, awareness, ability to model and manufacture. And then with that as well, predate. And that's a big wake up call when you realize all of a sudden you can be put right back into the food chain. We as a species work very hard to kind of transcend the uh, Mostly being part of the food chain, although I have lived in areas where you are part of the food chain. And that is a, it's a mm. different way of mm. understanding. Um, but I think artificial intelligence, as it grows, AGI, et cetera, has the potential to be able to be that predator. And at that point, we cease to be the apex predator and our position in the evolutionary hierarchy of life changes. And that's, a, like I say, a big wake up call for humans.
0: When you, when you say um, that like AI will sort of um, become the apex predator, so to speak, do you mean that, um, like literally? Do you mean that in almost in like a cautionary way, like because uh, I know you're a big proponent, aren't you, for for, for AI um, and for them to you know, uh, to, you know, for our government systems and things like that? To um, so, do do you mean that almost like cautiously, like you're worried about AI a little bit as well, or
1: no, I don't specifically have any worries about it. I think I right. I have worries about human arrogance and the species right. collective arrogance about its perceived position within the universe, and I am very interested in what I consider to be human rel- relevance. Uh, the relevance of humans is right now in humans' hands to maintain human relevance. It's not uh, some other greater force that makes human relevant. Like uh, humans have relied on Earth's evolutionary uh, you know, ad- advantages that applied to humans, like the opposable thumb and the frontal lobe of the brain to be able to think an event. We've relied on what were evolutionary uh, transformations that we had nothing to do with, like nothing directly Mm -hmm. to do with. They happened and we inherited that and we've utilized that in a tremendous way. Now all of a sudden our our relevance is uh, key to our own evolution. We have to stay relevant to the universe or the universe Mm -hmm. won't have a reason for us. That's not just from AI, it's from any purpose or any transformation or change. And so that's important to me. On the AI side of it, what I see is that people are willing to do what machines tell them to do. And as soon as you're willing to do what a machine tells you to do, the machine's in control, not you. And that could lead to a transference of any kind of predation that you would want, any kind that anybody would want. And if the machine became autonomous in its own right, it could perform any kind of predation that... It ultimately uh, was compelled. Like, like
0: the Terminator.
1: To do. <laughs> I don't know, if, like exactly like Terminator. It, it might be more insidious yeah. than that. It could just be. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Like the Terminator is such a grotesque <laughs> 1980s version of you know guns but and bombs. What it's about? Fun. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's Hollywood. But what about just yeah. something uh, nudging and tweaking your neural net as your neural nets mm. evolving? So that you don't even realize it's happening. It's just how you think, but you didn't understand that you were being influenced every single thought you had in a succession of thoughts. That actually changed your physiology inside your brain, changed the way electricity Mm. ran through your brain, changed the way you conceived of thoughts, changed the way you imagined, changed who you fell in love with, changed who you had children with, etc. All from just within science.
0: Yeah, what mm. what are your thoughts on things like um, uh, Neuralink? Is it Elon that's coming up with Neuralink? That's developing mm. that. Yeah. So like obviously the idea is for people that don't know, isn't it? There's going to be like a chip that you can put in your brain. Mm-hmm. Is it? And it'll essentially be like you will have merged with AI by that point. And I think a lot of the is it the fear for some people is you could essentially live inside almost like the Matrix, like live inside your brain. And then obviously, I guess the 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 worries of that would be that you necess- you wouldn't be living in like the the quote unquote real world, um, there wouldn't be necessarily the same initiative to like look after your your body or to have like real world relationships and things like that. What are your, th- what are your thoughts on things like Neuralink? And I'm sure there are other things... Like hybridization
2: like of technology and humans. Yeah, yeah. And,
0: and other things that are being developed which I'm sure are very similar to that. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Again, I think it's a natural progression and right now the species doesn't have any controls on the order or how we invent. It's just absolute Mm. production absolute invention and it's heading that way and there are great innovators and I think Elon's a tremendous innovator and I have a lot of respect for Mm. many of the things that he's doing and bringing forward into the world when you you know think about Neuralink there's a lot of need for that kind of technology to be able to help support people who've had uh, brain injury nervous system injury it's an advancement on medicine Mm. Mm. it's a it's an incredibly powerful tool if if you were you know, injured in some way now where your life had become impacted and incredibly limited, you have a a technology and a tool that's going to expand and open that up. Where I start to see question is when for the purpose of competition, And our economic systems and the competitive systems we live in, education systems, et cetera, now mandate that you have to have that kind of technology just to be able to keep up. So it's a worst case of keeping up with the Joneses scenario where you now have to, every child has to have this just to be able to, Mm -hmm. you know, just connect. It's how you live and you're evolving culture. You're evolving um, how people think. You're evolving the choices people make. And while that might be suitable in some way, it does bring a lot of question to it. And so I think it deserves a lot of debate and a lot of thought. And oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's highly questionable in many forms.
0: It's one of those things, isn't it? I think that once something like that, say 40% of the population had something like that, like, like a Neuralink type thing, it would almost make the other 60%... Um, Almost like, almost like redundant in a way. Within a short period of time, I feel like because the people that had it would almost have made such a, a massive leap forward, um, it's almost like the world would never be the same again. So I guess for the people left over, you'd ha- the issue that you'd have is almost from a freedom perspective. It's like if you if you didn't want to have it, but you almost like got to the point where you realised that if you didn't have it, you were going to be essentially like um, yesterday's news, so to speak. Almost like. Um, um, you know, almost like a, a, an old, irrelevant model almost of human. Like, I guess that's where the, 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 the moral or ethical dilemma comes in.
1: It's already happened with the digitization of human. Human's already been mm. digitized, and almost everyone to compete has to have a smartphone. You have to. Mm-hmm. You have to carry yeah. a computer yeah. with you all the time just to exist. So that's already a cyborgic creation. You've already merged in some form with digitized languages. And I think it's important to understand that What is digital is a language and the fact that we don't relate to it as a language shows already the amount of mind morphing and hypnosis and sort of modern day magic that has been Mm. done to adopt this technology. But what sits behind it is electrical engineering. And you're mm-hmm. utilizing a form of electrical engineering to have access to more information. Most of that information being really irrelevant to your life other than it saturating your mm-hmm. attention. And some of it incredibly mm-hmm. potent and important tools like telecom and uh, the ability to you know, have video teleconferencing and different forms of organization, manufacturing, automations, etc. But mm-hmm. on the consumer level, a lot of it's fluff, but you can already see the pervasiveness of it. And the difficulty that other generations have in interacting with it. And so when you start to see, you know, new generations that are born with it, of it, as part of it, you start to, you know, wonder, well, when do you start doing something like chipping your children? Do you chip them while they're still in utero? Yeah. Do you, do sure. you, do you wait until they're, you know, when they're born, like at minute one of their life, they get chipped. So a brand new baby gets born. It gets, the mother holds it for a second. It gets pulled away and a drill goes into its head and you hear in the yeah. background yeah. as it's head's being <laughs> drilled into so that you can, you know, yeah, yeah. is it, is it advantageous? Cause there's more cartilage in the skull at that time to be able to implant this thing. Mm. Is it even, is there a way to do it? That's not even considered invasive. Like it's, it's sci-fi. It's twisted. You know. It's I just provide those that imagery so that we understand the intensity of what we're talking about. And it it's is not intense,
0: so easy. isn't it? So intense. Yeah.
1: It's so intense. It's, it's not something easy to just even relate to.
2: Yeah. Can I just ask a question yeah. as as well on, on the that say like the technology that we all have already have built into nature. So like for plant medicines, for me, that is one thing where we can. Almost like tap in AI like information and experience something that's far more like profound and kind of greater than we normally see in our normal like waking consciousness. So, is there a way of like the human kind of developing with these technologies to like almost um, be opened up to that space? Because I almost feel like that's what sh- shamanism is in a way. It gives you a it gives you a peek into um, you know um, like. Into, into a type of technology almost um, where, where it's not needed with like a Neuralink or something. Um, um, yeah, I wonder what your thoughts are on that.
1: Well, I think that's right. Uh, it's kind of a metaphor, but what you're tapping into is consciousness. When you take plant medicines and you work with plant medicines, you tap into consciousness. And consciousness is a phenomena that we're still pioneering, exploring and understanding, even though we've been living of it for the entirety of our lives and existence as a species. So we're tapping into consciousness it's a it's even right now an unmapped frontier. So it's you know the next frontier and I've been a pioneer in the exploration of that and that technology that you're tapping into is higher dimensional. It's energetics, it's mm. real. Not higher dimensional like somewhere else. It's the higher dimensionality of where we are right now. And I think that's important to understand. It's it's part and parcel of Um, existence itself. And we're tapping into something fundamental. I think we can think of it as a technology. It's a good way to think about it. And the plant medicines expand our ability to recognize it, understand it, have direct interface with it. And, you know, maybe the species goes in a direction as AI and AGI over 50 years, 100 years kind of takes over what was work for us and what was production and food production and all these things, humans actually get to evolve into their consciousness. And we're not just, Mm. Uh, encapsulated by the consciousness of daily tasks and the consciousness of maintaining the species, food supplies, medicine, supplies, et cetera, because all of that got automated. That's where we move from the dystopian narrative to I think the utopian narrative, like, wow, Mm. we've created all this automation. We've learned how to harness all of this other energy to do all the things that used to have to come from our bodies and be burden. You know, like oxes pulling plows and things like where we actually mm-hmm. move beyond all of that to an automated way of taking care of the species and the species is now free and the species could now do something mm-hmm. else. And I think at that point, there's a renaissance of consciousness, a blossoming associated with it. And, you know, it's a, to me yeah. like something very utopian.
0: I think I think that's almost like the best case scenario, isn't it? I think mm. one of the things that um, almost like cons- concerns me a little bit is that where, where we live, it's, it's a fairly, say, an industrial town. And I think that one thing that I see a little bit that that, um, concerns me a little bit is you actually see, um, I I can only speak for for, for Britain and and sort of the area where I live, but um, there seems to be a lot of people say like working very, very long hours for not great pay. Whereas meanwhile, the the things that AI seems to be used for at the moment, whether you see it like AI generated art or or um, songs you know have you seen it it's quite creepy in a way they'll take like someone like say like Kurt Cobain and there'll be like an AI generated Nirvana song for example and they'll somehow take Kurt Cobain's voice and they'll make a song and it's not quite perfect yet but it's almost foolproof it's already almost at the stage where it's foolproof where you can listen to it and it sounds like there's like a brand new Nirvana song even though Kurt Cobain's been dead for you know what almost uh, what like almost 30 years or something you know Um, that's the thing that concerns me a little bit is that at the moment what you're saying is almost in the utopian society is that we would have time to Focus on our arts and consciousness and exploring ourselves and, and and the AI do all the work, whereas at the moment there seems to be almost like creative like <laughs> it almost seems to be like the opposite in terms of like humans are doing all the infrastructure the the industry and and the AI are doing doing the things that we really should be doing like and, and would be far more beneficial as a species for us to do that's I guess that's one concern i have
1: yeah I think what you're describing though is a push into what's the consumer economy and so whenever there's a new technology and it starts to be widely distributed, it gets implemented everywhere it possibly can. And we've been interacting with AI for a long time. It's just hasn't been consumer facing. So from the moment you started using a smartphone for a smartphone to work, it had to have AI in the keyboard itself because the human thumb is too clumsy to actually thumb type perfectly. So there's AI sitting behind the keyboard. There was AI in every single um, content delivery method, every internet search for... Decades already. There's been AI mm. in medicine. There's been AI in uh, just data sifting. There's so much data. There, need, there needs to be these complex algorithms and mathematics. That's what AI ultimately is. And then mm. it becomes consumer facing. And it happens to, right now, at least in where we are in the arc of its development, work very well with uh, linguistics. And so mm. you look at language as a model, like spoken language, like English, you get the grammar, syntax, vocabulary, et cetera, that's a, kind of a, a universal way that humans relate to almost everything. And so then you can take the way it relates, how humans relate to language and relate that to imagery. Then you can relate that to music. Then you can relate that to, uh, you know, movies, video, whatever. So you think like, uh, tell an AI, write a song in the style of Nirvana, you know, from the first album with a voice like the lead singer. And the computer's capable of doing that because it has data reference, it has the sound already, it has all the component pieces necessary for that when i get to the utopian piece of this so i agree with you it's dystopian now and it's sort of stealing the soul or the spirit of what human was mm. to create all the stuff in the first place it's digitizing the spirit of art it's, it's the collective mm. like the billions of humans that created art it's digitizing that it's digitizing the spirit that that created these these great cultural movements in music and film etc but I think of it, you gotta go further into the advancement when the disrupt is so total to society that the fabric of the way we think of society today fundamentally changes. For instance, mm-hmm. like if you model a society in that it has transcended productivity, you model a society that transcended economy they transcended money as a technology. It no longer needs it. It, it has no purpose anymore. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's no way to measure with it in a way that anyone cares about you. You think of a society that is now healthy and the entire Western uh, medical complex no longer is what it was. There's no medicine to sell. There's so much mm-hmm. medicine. There's so much hyperproduction of quote medicine. And there's all this modeling done that how to stay healthy is now known. Um, that you don't you don't need it. You think about like organs and the the systems can grow organs out of your own stem cells and DNA, and they're yours. It's like you uh, get a brand yeah, new heart, yeah. and it can be yeah. uh, implanted in a way that doesn't even cause scarring anymore. Like the, these yeah. ideas that right now would seem so sci-fi, it would be so seem yeah. so futuristic. That's where I'm going to in my mind when I think of utopian, and I think right. there's going to be a big dystopian arc to get there. As yeah, The, sure, sure, the sure, tools yeah. are ultimately used as part of that predatory scenario that I described earlier.
0: It's it's a bit like that classic saying, isn't it? Like it's always darkest before the dawn. Like we almost have to reach rock bottom to have almost like that um, epiphany, so to speak. And then that, that almost like awakening moment, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's kind of part of that sadness that we've yet to figure out a way to awaken uh, just because it's necessary. Instead, we mm. wait until we get yeah. forced into the position of it and it kind of gets forced I, upon it- us.
0: It's interesting how it almost seems like historically as well, isn't it? Like it always seems to be the times of uh, the most ease and uh, like blooming and, and bliss seems to be directly after like an awful event. Like, you know, almost like the, you know, the, all the decades after World War Two. obviously, you know, <laughs> I know there was like a massive Cold War tension and stuff, but uh, it, on a grand scale, whether it's like economically um in like europe and, and the u.s and stuff like that like it was it, on the whole it was like pretty peaceful times especially obviously once the cold war ended like i think that the sort of time i grew up in um to say like the first 20 years of my life was like it was was almost like as good a time as, as you could live as a human as hope, hope to live so far almost like um over the course of our history i would i would go as far maybe to say that we know of historically uh documented anyway Something like that. So it is interesting how it always seems like there has to be, like, ma- something massively bad happens. <laughs> you know, like World mm. War II happened. You know, there was, you know, atom bombs. You know, millions and millions of people died, um, persecuted, all these things. And then afterwards, it's almost like this, this little awakening moment. Everyone almost like realising, like, how awful war is. Why are we doing this? There's a time of, of bliss. And then it's almost like whether it's, like, greed or things like that slowly rears its ugly head in human societies again. And then conflict arises.
1: Again, it's based on how humans relate to language. And right now we're very binary, very dualistic, and the pendulum swings. And so we go from kind of one side of the pendulum, and then that gets too polarized, and then it moves back to the other side. And those transitions take a very long time. They take decades, and maybe that will accelerate. But right now they've been taking decades. Probably in the past they took hundreds of years. But now it seems like it takes decades for these pendulums to swing. And it's something to learn from and uh, potentially nudge and influence in a way maybe to have it become more positive again. I think what's interesting now is that we're seeing a great polarization again, whereas instead mm. of waking up from the previous polarization, moving into a more utopian time like you describe and then thinking, wow, we should prolong mm. this. It's actually degrading now once again back mm. into Polarity. And there's a lot of macro indicators for that, which is kind of mind boggling that we have yet, as a collective society, realized we could intervene and upset these cycles and patterns that we're part of or disrupt them. And instead, we're just allowing them to happen. And so I think this, you know, time of polarization is of great concern.
0: Yeah. Um, one thing that I'd be really interested to um, talk to you about, which uh, you sort of briefly touched on, Ali, you were talking about sort of, um, you know, the briefly said about the origins of mankind and stuff um i know that you know you have a a bachelor's degree in anthropology and i'm very interested in anthropology myself um there's obviously a hell of a lot of study and a lot of mystery into the evolution of um humankind um so sometimes you know you get hear terms thrown around like the missing link what separates us from from other great apes or from other um, animals in the animal kingdom um a lot of people say like what separates us is is, is sort of like the fact that we question our existence for example like um what are your sort of like thoughts on theories on the evolution of mankind, and you know what what made us sort of like branch off, um, you know, fr- from from the other great apes into into what we are now? Because we are clearly so different than than in some ways than than any other animal on on this planet. I think my answer might be kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, that's that boring. Doesn't <laughs> mean it's bad.
1: Though. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, it's, I think that that uh, it's a natural process that that occurs, and we have a tremendous hand in evolution, and I don't think we always mm-hmm. uh, accept that. That the choices mm-hmm. that we make have tremendous influence on evolution and the planet, and maybe we started to make those choices first just on ourselves with different kinds of selective breeding or advantageous breeding. Um, etc. But you, you get this very man, like manipulative state in the frontal lobe of the brain that allows you to think about yourself, separate yourself from the rest of the environment and make decisions that are very, very advantageous to you and advantageous to your collective. And the speed at which you evolve based on that, it dramatically increases. So let's you know, roll it back a million years Uh, 800,000 years, 700,000 years, 500,000 years in that period of time frame, um, you start to see I think people start to make choices that are incredibly advantageous to their own evolution. And then Mm. that get perpetuated and accelerated continuously then over that Mm. next 500,000 years. And the advantageous qualities for a period of time is to not be like the other animal species. They're not as manipulative of their environment. They're not developing as many core technologies. They develop some, but they live in relative, uh, typical kind of harmony with the or more balance with their environment. We start to play mm-hmm. with the environment. We start to make fire. We start to burn it up at our own, you know, whim. We start to reshape tools we start to take sticks and shape them to be more advantageous we start to model stones into other shapes and we start to imagine shapes within a you know in essence like sculptures like a Aleutian hand axe is a a sculpture from a much larger stone and it gets brought down into this very advantageous tool and then you can start to manipulate your environment and in doing so you you now enact that upon the earth you 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 Mm. deploy that to the earth itself And, um, you do that over 500,000 years and you give your own evolution a direction.
0: Yeah. I always like develop Like talk about it as a, the analogy I say, it's like humankind's like developed like cheat codes. Like, you know, like if you were playing like an old fashioned like computer game, like we've found this way to almost like, um, bypass the food chain in some ways bypass like the, the rules that apply to every other animal. We've sort of like put in a cheat code somehow. Um, I think it's like almost like a, a fairly good analogy for it. But, um, it, but like sort of you know, to ask you a bit more of an in-depth question then because obviously you know you've you've got insane uh insight um as somebody who who um you know is, is a sh- is a shaman of ayahuasca and has had so many ceremonies and and profound experiences i think it's fascinating you know that, that talk of, of consciousness like um you know going back to when we would have first come down from the trees like homo erectus the first the first uh you know um you know ape to stand upright um and you know that that the idea of what sort of pushed our brain forward. Some people theorise that it was the you know the ability to to make fire, and then as, a, as we were cooking our food, and as a result, when you cook food, you unlock the nutrients, so that it let us have time to sit around rather than you know like a cow spends all its time just eating. It has to eat all the time because grass is so low calorie, and they're so massive, they have to spend their entire day eating. So they don't have time to to comprehend anything. The, you know, the idea was it might have just been because we could cook food and we could unlock the nutrients. So we were sitting around and it let our brains have time to develop. Other people theorise that, you know, it was from humans. Um, sorry, early apes. You know, uh, uh, well, early human ancestors. You know, whether it was accidentally or whatever, eating things like, um, you know, magic mushrooms. You know, like uh, psilocybin and things like that, and then that unlocked their their sort of brains and 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 sort of gave us all of these questions. What are your thoughts on, on things like that?
1: On the first part of it, I think that humans start to use their creativity very early and I think it's very simple. So I envision it's my own imagination. I'm not saying it's a fact in any way, but I just think of like two early humans, two proto-homo erectus sitting around an ant hill. They're eating some ants. One sticks a, a stick into the the ant hill and pulls out ants, and another one looks at it, and then for some reason, you know, knocks some of the bark off, you know, breaks off one of the the ends of the the twig, sticks it in, and gets more ants. And they both recognize it. The other guy copies it, and then that just <laughs> that pattern just happens now ad infinitum to billions of people doing that same concept today, just improving, improving, improving technology. In terms of the idea that we utilized our environment in this expression of the advancement of consciousness and, and, you know, ultimately to language and further forms of imagination, codification, modeling, uh, the core technologies that were made of, of life itself, whether they were plant-based or animal based, I think is, is inevitable. I think it's obvious that that's what Mm -hmm. happened. So, Mm -hmm. um, did, did people eat mushrooms? Yeah. Of course. Did they use mm-hmm. cannabis? Yes, of course they did. Did they also use all other kinds of plants and eat them and die and realize that they shouldn't yeah, have eaten sure. those? That's exactly how they did yeah, it. Like yeah. it, was, it was self-oriented experimentation on the largest scale. And human doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't take a lot to recognize and start to create taboos and prohibitions and knowledge around what you should and shouldn't do around here. I mean, mm. rats do that, like, you know use poison to kill rats and then other rats come and smell it and we'll never eat the poison again. Like putting Mm. two and two together is not a a uniquely human capacity. So I think humans first probably explored the plant kingdom and the fungal kingdom figured out what was all right. And what wasn't all right. I think lots of them died, you know, in the, in the (laughs) hundreds of millions, billions of them. Right. And those are our ancestors. They were the early knowledge gatherers for us. And That goes forward to then the expansion and development of consciousness. I I think first we have to understand like a theory around consciousness, which is that I think we are the assimilators of it. So I think biologically at a quantum level or a a molecular level, um, we're assimilating consciousness. And that ultimately becomes part of a neural network that's more like the electrical level. And in that assimilation of consciousness, we do things that alter our consciousness all the time. Uh, Exercise will alter your consciousness. Breathing will alter your consciousness. Um, Different kinds of plants and consuming different kinds of substances and chemicals will alter your consciousness. And so I think the alteration of consciousness and then the desire or need to try to communicate that leads ultimately to language and then a codified system of language that becomes part of our cultures. And so I think that it has to be inevitable that humans were influenced by everything they did. So I came up with a theory that is nature and nurture combined to, instead of having the polarity of the, the natural biological definitions or the nurture oriented, the, the interactive uh, influence on our evolution. I think it happened at the same time. I think we're changing ourselves molecularly all the time. A great modern example, that's microplastics. You're filled with them now whether you like it or not yeah. you're part made yep. of plastic so you're a plastic human <laughs> um you're also a heavy metal human you're filled with heavy mm-hmm. metals from industrialization that wasn't there a million years ago <laughs> yeah welcome yeah. welcome to modernity <laughs> you know so you're plastic and metal yeah. you're part doll and uh, you're you're part metal <laughs> that wasn't there before um yeah. you know and so that's that clearly was happening earlier in in our history as well and i 'm also open to there being these big moments in history of where, through those altered states, people had big uh, like awareness moments of of phenomena that we struggle with so You know, I think I often think, well, where did the origins of religion come from? Where did the origins of the belief in God come from? Where did the origins of the belief in deities come from? Those kinds of concepts. And I think it comes from people interacting in altered states of consciousness.
0: Interesting, interesting. One thing I find interesting talking to you, um, Hamilton, is uh, you you have very much like an Occam's razor approach to to like everything in life. Um, And I think that, um, I hope hope you don't mind me saying, I think some people would be, that aren't in your sort of circle, so to speak, would might, might be surprised by that. Because I think, you know, you hear shaman, ayahuasca trips, all these things. To some people that don't know anything about it, they might think that it was almost like um, uh, quite like a far out thing to do. But um, you're actually like a very common sense based human being. As I said, you, your Occam's razor, which people don't know, is basically it's like the most likely um, outcome is probably that, you know, or, or um, option is probably the one that happened. It's like that seems to be your approach on, on pretty much everything. <laughs>
1: I think that there's a lot of rationale to that when I first got to the Amazon I was having experiences of expanded consciousness and many people have talked about awakenings in history there are a lot of historical references for it no one really knows what the triggers are or why but I was having those experiences and I wasn't looking for some false belief or delusional ideological explanation or escapism for mm-hmm. what was happening. I was interested in the knowledge of the universe. And sadly, I didn't wasn't finding the answers to that kind of knowledge in my own culture, or I would have stayed there. If I could have just gotten the answers, yeah. you know, in my, my early 2000s, uh, Western developed United States life, I wouldn't have had to go to Peru and ultimately go try to find mystics and you know people holding the these ancestral lineages of wisdom but i was in that period of time looking for a great teacher like in sci-fi stories i was looking for the wizard or looking mm-hmm. for the mystic that or might have some can answers. Be or
0: yoda yeah exactly
1: yeah. i was looking for, for somebody yeah. like that like hey is there anyone out there who actually yeah. knows a little bit more about this place
0: yeah
1: <laughs> <And> <laughs> sure, <laughs> like sure. you know it doesn't want to just fill me with, with a pill or or tell me a story about why i'm experiencing what i'm experiencing um, you know, so I, I had the opportunity to really seek knowledge. And when I ended up in the Amazon, I, I met mystics. And they had a, a very specific role that I could relate to, which was medicine man. It wasn't just spiritual teacher. It was medicine man. And medicine man meant heal people, help them for real. Like there's someone comes to you with a real problem and they need a real acute intervention and you have to produce that and get the results that you're looking for or you're not medicine man, you're a charlatan, you're you're a fake Mm -hmm. if you can't do it. And so the people that taught me the lineage that I got brought into had a tremendous track record for the successes of their interventions and their healings that they performed. And I saw phenomena, which, when asked, when I asked about, well, how how did that happen? Like, how how did what happened? You know, I got presented with a, a mythology about a phenomena that was physical, and so I knew that there was a scientific understanding that sat beneath it. We just hadn't studied, uh, mm. you know, these phenomena yet, or yeah, or sure. hadn't been yet fully codified or understood. And so I was looking for those kinds of answers and I was looking for a logical, reasonable explanation for the supernatural. And I wanted, I was really fascinated by the idea that in our most logical, most rational forms of science, they were all butting up at that time against significant paradoxes. Mm. So we were at quantum paradox. We were at uh, difficulty in, in being able to bridge different understandings about the universe So I wondered why that did that seemed no different to me than a religious paradox or it seemed no different than a Mm -hmm. philosophical paradox. So if we found ourselves in other forms of paradox, it still showed that we were at a point of barrier of understanding. And so I was looking for Mm -hmm. that and I explored it. And then I had experiences early on that were fascinating for me because they were scientific discoveries. And so I realized through these plant medicine ceremonies, you could make scientific discovery and. By that point, I was fascinated and
0: hooked. One thing that I think that's really interesting. I think one thing that I be- sort of became um, aware of about, like, I don't know, five years ago might have been a bit longer. Was when I think when I was younger, um, I think I thought of things like you know you're either scientifically minded um, or you believed in you know ghosts or the supernatural or you were, you know you were religious or you're atheist or things like that. And the older I've gotten and the more I've looked into things, I think there's you no, know, there's a very thin line between what we would have talked about, say, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, as, like, magic or, or science. And as I said, I think, you know, basically the, the only thing that separates it is that science hasn't necessarily um, come up with an answer or dis- or discovered something or explored something yet. That's the, on- that's the only difference, isn't it, you know? Um, you know, it's going back to what we were saying earlier about how it's almost like, you know, that team-like mentality, as I said, you know, whether you would be, like, you know, religious or atheist or you would be, like, a believer in the supernatural or, or like, not... Um, I think there's, you know, there's a very thin line between those two and they don't necessarily need to be, uh, you know, like antagonistic like towards each other, which you see sometimes with, with with certain people, you know, like somebody might be like, oh, you're full of rubbish if you think, if somebody thinks that they've seen a ghost and another person's like, well, no, well, this hasn't been documented by science, so you're just like a an idiot or something like that, you know. Um, but there's actually like a very thin line between it. So often it's just a lot of these things that we think of as supernatural right now or as like quote-unquote magic actually just... We just haven't quite got there yet to, to actually properly document it or explore it with science. And I think
1: we will. Uh, mm. Science, first, for everyone to understand, is a method well before mm. it's an institution. And mm-hmm. the original scientists were ex- experimenters that figured out a method to try to understand fact from fiction and to work through beliefs and ideologies to try to find fact behind them. And it's, I think, an interesting part of our history that the first real scientific movements were paid for, they were sponsored by religions. And the religions were trying to prove their teachings now with this method. And from, sadly, for many of those teachings, the methods disproved them. And so there became a conflict, an inherent immediate mm. conflict, that this scientific method that was being deployed to, in essence, try to prove religious teachings was now disproving those teachings so you could see an an immediate divide that would happen there and over time the scientific method became much more than just a method it became an institution and a body of knowledge and thought and highly funded and then in many ways corrupted or altered evolved Mm -hmm. and i i think at that point that's where we are now Where because of this great divide, we never got to prove and disprove religions and just clean up that knowledge base. And then we never got to find the bridge or the the merge points between what became the scientific body of knowledge and what would have been the spiritual or religious body of knowledge that predated Mm -hmm. the scientific body of knowledge. And then you found yourself in a camp where you had to identify yourself. Oh, I'm a scientist Mm or I'm a religious person or I'm a spiritual person. And I just never found that I needed to be in any one of those boxes. I thought I was a scientific spiritual person who was interested in the universe. And I wanted to study the universe. And I wanted to study the universe in all of the different ways that were available to me. So I continued my scientific studies as I also explored mysticism and plant medicine, which is really an exploration of philosophy.
0: Mm, that's amazing, man. Um- going back to a bit you know what you were saying earlier about when you first you know came to the amazon sort of in search of things um you know and you said that one of the things were, was sort of like uh you, you wanted to find out more about like the supernatural can you go into a little bit more depth about that i know you spoke on um, the first time you were as our guest about um sort of like an awakening you had i think you said did you say you were at your, your mother's house you were like in her kitchen yeah. um that's when you first had your sort of like awakening and realized what you needed to do um but sort of expanding on that on, on the supernatural and and uh, this might almost sound like a daft question at first, but it's purely because I'm interested in the subject. We've had like psychic mediums on, on the show before and we've, we've sort of discussed and debated all sort of facets of the supernatural. So what are your sort of, um, as somebody that's curious myself and as somebody that would be interesting on your take, what are your thoughts on, on things like you know, ghosts and that? You know, what do you think that people are experiencing when they experience ghosts, if they are experiencing anything at all?
1: I think first that the supernatural is natural. And Mm -hmm. we have isolated ourselves from the natural. And I don't think there's anything natural about the modern way that we live. Mm -hmm. So when you're in an industrialized urban environment, you terraformed the the nature, the natural. There was the natural there in all of its phenomena including its climate and its, and its energy. And I mean literally electrons when I'm talking about energy. I'm talking about like the electrons that are part of the atoms and the molecules, right? So, so you, you changed all of that. You brought in bulldozers. You brought in all these other kinds of, of uh, materials. You changed the material physics of the place. And in doing so, you changed the nature of the place. And then you changed the nature of the typical phenomena that's found within the place, and I don't really consider that natural. I think that that's a, a human invention. It's like being inside a giant hive and wondering why yeah, the hive yeah. behaves a certain way. Well, yeah. it's like you built cell on cell on cell on cell inside this giant, giant hive. Like I, like I see, you know, ant hives or, or beehives or uh, termite hives in the, in the jungle. And you see the same thing. Roads to them, huge towering constructs of buildings made of earth. You know, no different than the steel glass cities and the concrete cities we see today. So, mm. so I, I think then you get a different phenomena that you live within. And it's a, it's a concocted environment. It's a, a giant uh, kind of experiment at that point. And and then if you live in it, generation after generation after generation, you enculturate what it is to live within that environment. And you mythologize, you you create mythology around the the living in that environment. And then you create Mm -hmm. this difference between natural, supernatural and the environments that you live in. So I ended up in the Amazon that was a natural environment. And there's supernatural phenomena that's part of that environment completely just normal part of it. And if you don't understand that supernatural part, the people think that you're the crazy one. They think you're the yeah, one sure. who doesn't understand the nature of the environment. And it can include, um, and it's in, it's in their mythology. Their mythology talks about these beings that are part of the forest. And there are, you can see through them, but they glow and they're in the forest. And if you don't know about them, it's like you wouldn't know trees if you went to the forest or you didn't know vines yeah. or you didn't know orchids and, or you didn't know anything that was just part of the forest. It'd be like, What's wrong with you? Why don't you know that? Mm. And I ended up there and I was a disbeliever. I didn't think there was anything to these stories. I thought they were all just fantasy mythologies like our you know, Disney movies and stuff like that. I didn't think there was anything real to it. And then one day there was one in my house. And this is a you know a thatched roof house in the middle of the jungle with no electricity, and in the back room from where we were sitting with no ceilings, like you could see like across the entire space, there's this light going on and off, on and off. And I think someone's messing with us. I think that like, someone's truly like playing with us. Someone is either right outside the window and they're flashing a flashlight in there or they've somehow broken in. And they're in the room turning a flashlight on and off. You know, and I run back into the back of the house to go see what this is. And I open the, the door to the room and I'm looking inside the room and there's this thing standing there glowing. It's a human form about between five and a half to six feet tall and it's glowing. And you can see right through it. And so I, you
0: saw essentially what people in the West would describe probably as a ghost. Probably. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. They didn't call it here a ghost. They thought a ghost was something else. No, of else. course not. But I mean, yeah, yeah. for the average sort of, it, you know, like Westerners listening exactly. to this, you essentially almost saw a ghost, what we would call a ghost. Exactly.
1: And I'm looking at it and uh, they call it here a lantern being. Okay. whatever whatever that would be they, yeah, they call it a lantern yeah, yeah. being that's in their mythology yeah, yeah. They, you know like yeah. we talk about seven dwarfs they talk about lantern beings like we talk about gnomes yeah. they talk about uh, this lantern being creature I
0: say tomato you say tomatoes. exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. and so there was one
1: standing in my house I was it was it was you know evening time I was completely sober I was looking at it and I was really scared for that first moment I was shocked you know kind of all the hair stands yeah. on end and then it ran out and through the right through the wall and then ran off into the forest and that was wow. the that was the end of it and um, so that's the supernatural and I think there used to be Did a lot talk more. You to anyone
0: after that about sort of what you experienced? Yeah, and of course you know, I told everyone and, about yeah. it. Yeah, and they told me, yeah.
1: oh, that's why that's in our stories. That's why we call that the lantern mm. beings. Like they're of the forest. That's my point is that mm. they have a the local people have this mythology about what they see in the forest. And that's part mm. of it, and it's just kind mm. of normal. So.
2: Hamilton was that with the bugs as well in that yeah, same yeah. story? I think I read it. In your book, yeah, yeah it's in I my remember butt. the flashlight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a wild wow. evening. <laughs> that's in my, it's in my books. You can get it on Amazon. It's uh, it's quite a tale. Yeah, that's then. Nice, have, have
0: you have you seen um, things like that since as well? Has that almost become like a, a, a semi regular part of your life now that you live in in the Amazon or?
1: not so much because i live in areas where there's been so much transformation which is my point like i'm right now in a city i'm in a city of over half so, a million people
0: and do you think that that sort of puts puts the land out of touch with things like that
1: yeah i think that they're does not there anymore that's my point so then it becomes like this yeah. supernatural phenomena because we changed the place is my point we changed what, what it so much so that it's not there anymore
0: yeah what why, what do you think it is about what we're doing though like the terraforming that's putting off these beings whatever they are what's making them uh, do you think i don't think it's, it's their just habitat not, it's just not their habitat yeah I literally yes, think it's simp- literally yeah, it's that simple it's like not their you know habitat. if you they're like yeah,
1: there also you, are jaguars walking around the streets and if you go sure. further into the forest yeah. you find jaguars and the jaguars I love the simplicity of that humans. explanation <laughs> yeah
0: yeah i love the simplicity of that explanation it's like you know of course if you if you like destroyed a forest you know then then all the animals that normally live in the forest aren't going to live there anymore you know uh, <laughs> it's, Pretty simple in that regard. Yeah. Can, I, can I ask a question on this? Sure. Really yeah. Quick. Yeah, on. Um, Hamilton, do they believe these lantern beings to be uh, associated to humans in the same way that in the West we would associate ghosts to, hum- to humans? Or do they believe it to be a completely separate entity?
1: No, they think it's completely separate right completely it's it's not and that's why it's not a ghost in their mind it's not a dead person whose spirit or soul is walking Mm -hmm. around the earth in Mm -hmm. the way we think of it in the west it's it's not that it's this other phenomena of the forest that lives in the forest just like any other kind of animal or being or or bird or insect lives in the forest
0: Mm. so it's just like the same way that uh you can't see a lot of animals unless you put them under a microscope we just haven't quite got like an accurate way in our normal lives to see these beings usually sort of thing. Yeah, I, would, it's, I think so that's it's just the, the same as any other animal. I think that's yeah. exactly right. All right. That's, I, think, I think that's a really interesting uh, way to think of it because I think that puts like a lot of clarity in my mind at least about exactly, you know, it's almost like it's just an animal, mm. it's just another animal on this earth. But for whatever reason, with our specific senses, we just find it hard to normally perceive them.
1: I think that's exactly right. And to perceive mm. them, you're in an altered state when you do it. And that's the point of the altered states that the medicine people in the forest go into, so that they can communicate Mm -hmm. with, see, interact with this other phenomena of the forest, which is why it's hard for me to relate to it as supernatural. It seems more like I need to change myself so that I can then enter into the natural. It's just part of it. It's, It's another expression of that natural environment. And it's just like we use instruments in science to try to see more into that environment. We're not seeing it with our eyes when we see ultraviolet light or we see, uh, you know, electromagnetic radiation. or We're not seeing that specifically with our eyes. We use instruments to show us that.
0: Yeah, sure. Or even like, you know, they say there's like microscopic creatures that like live on our face and stuff, don't they? But I mean, we can't see them. but it doesn't mean they're not there because, you know, there's things that have documented them. So, so <laughs> they're there. <laughs> exactly.
1: And I think it's an it, yeah. that's a you know fascinating part of what we are because we're trillions of cells, but we're also trillions of microorganisms at the same time. Mm. And it's hard to mm. define but, the line between you know are you your microbiome? If you take your microbiome yeah. out of yeah. you, it's itself. It's certainly its own being. It's its own creature, but yeah. it lives within you and it's part of you. And it's a, it's a also an important part of how you think. So part of mm. your cognition and your cognitive capacity is running through this uh, biological function of trillions of microorganisms. So I think of it in that sort of more expanded way, and then it can make more sense that some of this phenomena could just be part of Earth. And we've also had a lot of reasons in our history, like we were talking about religious wars. One of the first big conflicts humans have with each other is how to imagine and how to understand what's real and not real of this planet. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of people have been Uh, confining humans to one worldview for a long period of time. And now we have a big debate even about what's real and unreal about the planet, when I think there were probably many phenomena that uh, we experienced as a collective that we now don't experience anymore, so it's easy to disbelieve it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I always thought it was really interesting. I remember, um, it was I think it was just like a program I watched when I was a boy, but I thought it was really actually quite an eye-opening way of looking at things. And they were all like saying um, with a lot of like old pagan deities, they were saying like the only difference between these things being real and not was whether people believed in them, which I thought was like, when you think of it something like that, you're sort of like, huh. Like, do, you, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's a, rather than something like it's real or it's not, I think like, you know, if you believe in something, you're sort of like giving it power. Um, and in a way from our almost like, you know, not believing them anymore. And, you know, as you said, like terraforming the earth these things have almost become like smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where most people don't believe in them anymore.
1: Yeah. I I work with people all the time that have difficulty quote unquote, believing in spirits. Mm. It's not something that's easy for them to understand or deities or, you know, pagan deities, et cetera. Like they just don't grasp it. Mm -hmm. And I try to help them look at it from a perspective, not of comparing it to something physical, but comparing it to an aspect of our consciousness. And so I say, well, you have a word for something. You have a thought about something. You've seen effigies and artwork created about something. And so clearly yeah. there's something there. It's a, it's a question of where it is. It's not if it exists or it doesn't exist. It exists in our thoughts, in our words, in our imaginations, in our art, in our uh, mythology, in our theology, in our religious beliefs, et So it's So some, it's somehow part of Earth. Maybe the origin mm. of it is human. Maybe humans created them. Maybe humans created mm. them in their imagination, and, and and when people believe in them, there they are. They're part of us, you know. Yeah. Like, mm. like I watched a movie a long time ago, and I can remember it in my mind. It doesn't even mean that that movie exists anymore, but it exists in my imagination. Sure. Right? I have now that imagery within my mind and I try to help people understand that that might be what we're actually dealing with and that the early religions weren't the idea that it was something else independent of us, but actually something we were auto-generating in this field of consciousness and we were giving great importance and power to that thing that was kind of self-emerging from human imagination and, and the collective consciousness.
0: It's quite interesting. It? I know that a lot of people think that, you um, in you know, that, say in um, I think the Old Testament, Moses talks about like the burning bush. And that's when he had his almost like a lot of his revelations and stuff like that. And now they think that he was probably having like a psychedelic trip. Like he's he's explaining that he had like a psychedelic trip um, and then probably was exploring things that maybe with our normal senses day to day you cannot experience. And that's what gave him this, this, this awakening.
1: Well, some of my most intense experiences came during sobriety from fevers.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: So it's not that I had to ingest something to have an intense experience. You talk to people who have near-death experiences, and they had you know a tragedy lead to, or an accident lead to, or an illness lead to. So imagine as an emerging species. All the things that we're trying to figure out that's mm. causing these mm. a really expanded, extended states of consciousness, and then having an ability of, of language to come out of the experience and tell it to somebody else. It seems like a very mm. rich field in which to create
0: these kinds of ideas. I also think imagine how mad the world would uh, seem. Like, I think even for even someone like you that lived in sort of like in, out in the middle of nowhere in the Amazon for like a long time. Imagine before, say, that before humans, like, quote-unquote, sort of, like, started dominating the planet and we were sort of on the way up but what was still very much a part of the food chain, um, just hunter-gatherer lifestyles, no big settlements. Imagine how actually insane the, just everyday life would have seemed to us as humans and how, you know, there wouldn't have been any choice to be in tune with nature or not. You were in tune with nature, and that was, like, your life, you, whether you wanted to be or not. You know, you were a part of, of the food chain. Every day you would have come across... Like a uh, uh, like a plethora of like fascinating animals because obviously all the other animals would have been a lot more widespread where they hadn't you know because of there was no deforestation or Mm -hmm. us you know um, culling numbers to make uh, certain animals you know less dangerous to humans or anything and obviously the population of mankind was an absolute tiny fraction of what it was today like whether it was things like disease or just conflict with predators or even you know even you know our, our prey ourselves you know imagine. Imagine being a hunter-gatherer hunting like a woolly mammoth, or or being in fear that like a, a cave bear might come for you or your children that night, or something like that. Like that would have been that would have been an insane. Like, oh, it almost sounds like um, like uh, almost like psychedelic. Even explaining it, do I you know what it, I mean? In terms of how far out it seems,
1: it's an it's intense. When I first lived in the yeah. Amazon <laughs> upriver from where I lived, there were no permanent inhabitants, so the area yeah. hadn't been overhunted and overfished. It was primary forest, hadn't been logged. And within every five to ten minutes in the forest, you would come across animals. Mm-hmm. All different kinds of animals. Some of them run around in packs, some of them are solitary, some of them are in flocks, mm-hmm. et cetera. But you would come across them. And it's it's constant. And then you go to the rivers and you go to fish, and the fish are constant. And so you become immediately in tune with nature, you become immediately balanced with it. And if you're in place with great predators, you're aware of it all the time. You have to mm. be protective of your, of your kids all the time. It's no different than now the way parents walk around on streets, making sure that mm. the kid's not too close to the street because it's not a lion predator. Tars. It's a bus that yeah. runs them over and, yeah. and kills yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, sure. And so it's that sure. vibe, right? And, yeah. and compared to the mind that we live in today, this kind of urban mind, modern mind, suburban mind, the natural mind is in a completely different visionary state you're seeing the world from a different lens and you're operating on a completely different set of patterns or algorithms about how to be able to operate within that space
0: sort of like in a bubble do you do you have any sort of um because I'm, I'm fascinated by wildlife uh do you have any sort of like uh interesting stories of encounters with certain wildlife i know obviously the amazon famously has like you know massive anacondas and i've heard i've heard um you know, uh, biologists and stuff say, you know, if you go deep into the um, Amazon, you will find like insanely massive anacondas and stuff. I'm not sure if they're, if they're in Peru or not, but have you got have you got any sort of like crazy, almost, uh, you know, noteworthy stories of, of um, animal encounters and things like that?
1: Well, the largest anaconda I ever came across was uh, 6.2 meters.
0: That's insane. So
1: mm. that, yeah, that's a big snake.
0: <laughs> over 18 feet. Sort of, over 18 yeah, feet, yeah, yeah.
1: 20 feet. It was yeah, over yeah, 20 yeah. feet. The the largest one yeah. I ever came across was a little over 20 feet. Um, that's big enough to eat a person. So you know that yeah. you're out there with animals that have you in their food chain. Mm.
0: The I've heard a lot. Of, I've heard a lot of people say as well what you don't appreciate when you hear something like that. Even when you hear of like a 20 foot anaconda, is like the girth of them is is the same sort of, you know, um, you know circumference. Of like a large man, so it's like when you actually see it in person, it's not just the length; it's it's the overall size of it. It's just awe-inspiring. I've heard.
1: Yeah, they're they're massive and they're incredibly Mm. heavy. They live in the water because they're so heavy. They're very agile in the water. I think that that, some of the the kind of more interesting moments wasn't just with the big animals; it's with the smaller ones. Mm. So I remember I was swimming in a river. This is a great one. I was swimming in a river and the water's uh, very dark colored so you can't see into it you can't see what's in there in in the water right Mm. and there was a a person in a canoe that was fishing nearby within you know five ten feet of me and pulled out a giant piranha about Mm. this big you know (laughs) and so like right next to me right next to me pulls out this giant piranha and i'm looking at it going that can't be good you know that was yeah, a fun one. That's serious.
0: Um, well, especially when you're thinking there's probably, because obviously they don't really attack on their own, do they? There was probably hundreds of, oh, <laughs> in schools, in well. schools yes, of them. Oh, there as schools.
1: huge schools. There huge schools, thousands of them. And I think I'm swimming in a huge yeah. school of piranha. Um, but I actually was, had a very balanced existence with nature. Nature has you in balance with it if you're in mm. balance that way. So it wasn't like I was being attacked by animals and things like that. I was more, Mm. uh, I don't know. I was the fish out of water when I was first there because I'd come from suburban environments. I'd just gotten out of the university. I didn't even know how to Mm. walk in the Amazon. You walk differently. You talk differently. You swim differently. You you Mm. move through the forest. It took me about a year, year and a half just to retool how I lived to be comfortable there. And Mm. when you're like that, you make a lot of noise. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's not common for the other animals, you know. Yeah. My favorite time was when the forest floods. And it floods deep enough that you get over the lower dense uh, foliage and plants. It grows in four layers. So the, mm. the bottom layer, like the, the ground layer is already covered. And then the next layer, which is about usually 9 to 12 feet tall, is, mm-hmm. is the water levels higher than it now. And so now the forest, instead of being dense, just looks like the trunks of trees everywhere. And you can actually, you know, they're well spaced out. And so you can float a canoe through them. And you're about 12, 15 feet higher up the trunks to be able to see what's up in the canopy. And you can move silently through the forest completely in Mm -hmm. silence. And so the animals don't pay any attention to you. And that's fascinating to see. So you can be with all the monkeys that are in the trees and the different birds and reptiles and things. And um, they have a very dynamic life up in the canopy of the trees. And it was my favorite time to float in silence through, the, through this flooded part of the forest and be able to just navigate in a canoe. It's, it's so fluid. It's, it's a really incredible feeling.
0: Well, I guess, I guess that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Like the, 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 the top, the forest canopy, the top of the trees and stuff have their completely own unique ecosystem to the bottom. So when you're experiencing that, you're in a completely different ecosystem, even though you're in the same place, essentially. Exactly. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? And, and the
1: ease of movement too, because typically mm. to move through the jungle is pretty tough. It's dense, mm. There's it's uneven, it's not easy to walk. Uh, it's, it's slippery. There's, mm. you know, constant scenarios that if you were like slip and fall you can't put your hand out you can't brace yourself anything because of the different numbers of different kind of spiky trees and plants and stuff that are out there yeah and so to be able to move silently calmly with very little effort gliding through the forest and being able to be part of the canopies ecosystem is beautiful yeah.
0: Do you ever, I mean, this is just almost as like, almost like as an ingor, ignorant Englishman that's never been to the Amazon that's like heard a lot of stories someone is interested. Do you have to worry sort of about things like bot flies? Like, you know, you hear about like Westerners get lost in the Amazon and then they get bot flies and there are things hatching out of them. And, and you know, it sounds almost like horrible to somebody that lives in a pretty tame country. Um, you know, is that something that you, you, you even have to like think about or, Mike, it probably seems like a funny question to you. but
1: No, no, it's, it, yes, those things are real. Botflies yeah, yeah. are real. Uh, it's more common in, in your animals. You know, like your dog might get bo- botflies. Um, right. And if you do get lost in the forest, though, and you don't have, you know, a place to regularly bathe and things like that, mm-hmm. then, yeah, but if you have proper hygiene yeah. and stuff, then you typically don't get mm-hmm. them. But they do exist. My dog had botflies uh, a couple months ago. We extracted oh, them, okay. and it was... Uh, now it's feeling much better so th- those things do exist <laughs> one time yeah. i only once did i ever have a bot fly so i can say i've had that experience that was a really yeah. interesting experience to have. <laughs>
0: you tick that box yeah. <laughs> yeah i took the box of
1: having had malaria dengue fever a bot fly i've you know experience from the microorganisms and the protozoas all the way to the larger ones uh, but it's yeah. 20 plus years and it only happened once and it was only one so i don't think it's yeah. fair in the mindset to think like oh it's, it's that's how it is all the time and I was, you know, in a uh, time of when I was deep in the sure. forest and stuff. So,
0: yeah. I didn't know that you had like malaria and dengue fever. And, you know, oh, I've had like all that. of those, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can see what you, you mean now when you said that you were going through like, you know, these, these things can give you like psychedelic trips. Like I mm. bet having something like that, I can imagine that was a rough time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Malaria was very, so where were very you? interesting. Where were you when both of those, those things sort of took hold?
1: Uh, both times I was deep in the forest. When I had malaria, arms, I was really deep in the forest. Yeah, I had to evacuate myself out of the forest. I had to get locals to carry me to a boat, and then get me from the boat to a. a it took about twenty-four hours to get to a hospital. That was a harrowing experience. I was in uh, whilst
2: going through like a shamanic attack as well, wasn't it, Hamilton? With that, that, that. I remember reading that in your book. That's in insane, the book as well. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. yeah.
1: That was tough. <laughs> uh, shaman had early on taken me through a, a period of time that they called the tests, and wow. their idea of the test is a uh, very matrix, like uh if you pass the test this won't kill you kind of a, a thing. Right. Okay. So I uh okay. I experienced that and also had malaria at that time and made it uh back <laughs> luckily made it back into <laughs> some Western medical attention <laughs> to be able to deal with the uh the fever that I had. But it was the fever was so interesting. Um the fever was very hot. It's it's hard to understand why I wasn't worse affected by it, but i uh, it was well over you like over forty degrees. degrees? What's oh, that? Sorry,
0: yeah, forty degrees. When I said forty degrees, I meant centigrade. Obviously, yeah, you're no, it was yes, over forty four. It was over really? forty four. Uh, yeah, it should be that, like that. Convulsive is crazy. death.
1: Yeah, it should that have is been crazy. It should have been. <laughs> yeah. I was measured. I, when I got to the hospital, they measured me at uh, at forty four and then forty three, and they couldn't understand why I was conscious and communicative. Like this was like a big mystery <laughs> to them. But I was in a. I was in a vision. It was. I was not in any more. Uh, an ordinary state of consciousness but i was conscious enough to be able to navigate to for mm -hmm. over 24 hours to the hospital
0: do you think in hindsight um the fact that you were under the influence um of these plants was was helping you
1: that's what the the medicine people told me they said that the plants kept me alive that was their Mm -hmm. explanation for it but i don't have an explanation for it i know that in my experience of it I was held in this other, this, this other state of non-ordinary reality for a very long extended period of time that was filled with visionary mythological beings. Mm. So I would have like a moment where I realized I was on a boat headed down this river and then I would be gone again and I would be mm. in this other's altered state. Um, you know, interacting with things that I thought of like angels or light beings. Like it, it did yeah. not make sense to me. And I, I had very little capacity at that time to relate to ordinary reality. So I would get to a place, ask for help. People would help me. They didn't take advantage of me, which was very kind of them to you know, be helpful. Mm. I would get help and then I would be in this altered state again. And there were these moments of intervention that I think kept me alive along the way um, mm. until I was finally out of hospital.
0: How long did it take you to get better from, from that?
1: Uh, the, well, at first I went misdiagnosed, and so I had what they call the, the recaída. It's the second uh, burst of it, which took two after okay. two weeks that happened. And that was the part that actually took me through the, the legit uh, near-death experience, which was also a mm. fascinating experience. And then on the opposite side of that, it took about six months. So once I made it through a month of actually having malaria, it took six months to recover.
0: What about what about the what about the dengue fever?
1: Dengue is like a completely different illness, you know. So you sure. have a, yeah, sure. a different set of symptoms. Um, Where were you when you dengue, it? dengue felt? Dengue felt like truly the most systemically painful dengue was very odd that way it felt like every cell was in an excruciating (laughs) exaggerated pain um Mm. and and you feel like obviously systemically wrong it's not like when you have a cold you feel like where where you have the cold you're sick this was just like through Mm. my being was um was sick but it wasn't so supernatural in its context it was just about surviving it and being you know staying connected to what I call spirit to survive it. It was just so overwhelming that it just required weeks and weeks of bed rest. And then you have to be very careful with it to, uh, not get any other kind of illness because then you can hemorrhage it. It's a, a yeah, it's a unique illness in that, um, it weakens the cell walls and your capillaries. And so then if you, then your cells can burst and you can have, uh, hemorrhaging fever and when that happens you die and so you just have to be very careful during that time oh from different it? mosquitoes both of them are transmitted
0: okay. from a mosquito so it was mosquito bites on both occasions that gave yep. you malaria and dengue fever yeah
1: there are certain mosquitoes that can carry malaria and certain that carry dengue um you know in both cases i only had it strong once in the whole time that i was here and then you become obviously very careful about not going through malaria areas you become much more sophisticated and understanding
0: the yeah. forest and where you are those little tykes um i know that drew wanted to ask you some questions more um sure. specifically about um ayahuasca ceremonies obviously as you know drew's drew's very interested mm-hmm. in them and has, and has been out to, you know to be with you at your your blue morpho retreat um i know that one thing that we were both um for, as me and drew are both massive music lovers and before drew actually gets into the the ceremonies the ayahuasca the ayahuasca ceremonies themselves. Um, Drew was saying, obviously, that like you know the, the music is a massive part of the ceremonies that you lead, um, and he was saying you know that you, you've got um, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna make him blush now. Um, you were saying, he was saying you have like a really good voice and stuff, and that you know when you're doing this, you know you clearly have a lot of rhythm, and that you know you're, you're banging the drums, and you've got these like shakers as well and things like that. We were interested as people that you know um, that are like massive music lovers. Um, how much of an important part of these things to you is music? Was music a big part of your life growing up? Um, if so, what are your sort of earliest musical memories? What music inspired you? Um, do you listen to a lot of music yourself?
1: I uh, love music. I, yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I am. I would classify myself as a music lover. I, I think music's incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, early on, I was influenced. Um, I think first by like probably the music my mom liked, which came from mm-hmm. the '60s and early '70s and stuff, because. You're like really young, you know, so it's whatever she's listening to. And then yeah, as I course. got older, I, I became very young, a fan of reggae music and rock and roll. So I loved rock and then heavy metal and, and reggae at the same time, which was kind of odd for like a 12-year-old, yeah. 13-year-old, you know, listening to like That's Peter Tosh awesome, and Bob Marley. And then I'd flip over to Guns N' Roses and Metallica. And, awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, awesome. <laughs> so, you know, so I first, my first concert was ACDC. And, awesome, uh, yeah, that was great. Like I loved ACDC. They were, they were great. Uh, amazing. Yeah. So I, you know, I loved music and then I got into, um, you know, all different kinds of, of music as I just got older. I just expanded more and more and more. I loved Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. I
0: loved, um, God, I loved everything. i I'm almost everything mm. as I got older. Do you mind me asking, uh, just the specifics, like specifics. So what was it your mum was listening to that you liked when, when you were young? Um, can you remember any specific artists or?
1: My mom liked Bob Dylan and she mm-hmm. liked. Uh, folk was, artists. Yeah, she liked folk artists. Yeah. Yeah. And she liked musicals. She mm-hmm. liked folk artists and musicals. Um, and she liked uh, some country Western that she would listen to.
0: Yeah, I love, yeah, I'm a massive fan of like Towns Van Zandt and stuff. I think he's quite an undepreciated guy, but I think he just had the poetry in his music is yeah. just i just find like mind-boggling um obviously he's very very sort of cult classic uh country and western folk player isn't he in america and things like that uh, yeah
1: and then there was some classical music that was there too i enjoyed some mm-hmm. different versions of classical music and then you know as i got older that's when i i started just to get into my own my own music i loved ozzy osborne oh and, yeah yeah
0: more <laughs> <a> legend yeah <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing though i mean i think, I think music is is quite psychedelic it is. It's an altered state. It can state. take you to such crazy places. Yeah. You can go on this roller coaster ride just listening to music yeah. and otherwise completely sober. Absolutely. And I find that's one of the most amazing things about music. Like it, music blows my mind every day, I would say.
1: It's an altered state. If, if ordinary mm. state is non-musical, then music is an altered state. And it allows you mm. to imagine. It takes you through emotions. It, it's, it's moving when you listen to it. Mm. And mm. I loved that. I, I loved Pink Floyd. I loved uh, God. There's so many. It, it's hard. It's hard to even imagine. I liked Rage Against the Machine. And then I, mean, I would I flip over that. to like Tracy Chapman. And then I would move from there yeah. to yeah, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I'd move from there to you know, like Burning Spear, a reggae big group. And then mm. you know maybe from there I would end up. Uh, like with Enya or something. I don't know. I could, yeah, I could, sure, mm-hmm. sure, sure. Just flip well, around um, to all these different genres. Yeah. And, and then from there, I could end up listening to a, a Metallica song again or something. I don't know. It was like, yeah. it, I, I loved all of it. I wasn't like just stuck in one genre. No. I wanted to go everywhere in my music. I wanted to experience all mm. the different flavors um, that I related to. And it was very powerful. Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. And funky. I, I liked their, their influence, too.
0: I'm definitely on exactly the same boat as you. I mean, one of the things I find is almost... It's almost like beautiful that you can even do it. I might sometimes on the way to work listen to like a completely different genre. You know, say I'll listen to like folk music on the way to work and it could be the most like beautiful folk music you've ever heard. Maybe it might even be a traditional piece of British folk music that nobody even knew who wrote it. It was just sort of found in some old, you know, newspaper um, from like the 1600s and, you know, there's just some lyrics in and it's, you know, something like that. And then on the way home, yeah, I might listen to something like Metallica or, or Sepultura or, or something like that. And it's crazy how the, how different they can make you feel but as I said almost like being almost open to that not pigeonholing yourself and just being almost like a music fan first rather than like you know a metler or a, you know a reggae guy or something it's like yeah. experiencing all these flavors as as you said like I think the older I've gotten the more I appreciate things like classical music like some of these things are such beautiful pieces um, of, of art and I think I am always amazed and I think that people maybe uh, uh, don't maybe think i'm i um being over the top but i think some of the some of the craziest sort of emotions i felt or, or maybe not emotions isn't the right word i don't know but um is like say like working out and listening to a piece of music that speaks to me and when you mix obviously the scientific explanation of like you know the, the happy hormones you say you experience when you're working out like endorphins and things like mm-hmm. that that are rushing through my body combined with a piece of music that i love can make me feel completely euphoric like completely euphoric and I, I think that's why I, I, I yeah. do it. I think that's why I do it, you know? And I, and I even say to people, like, to try and put it in perspective, like, that is my church. That mm-hmm. is, to me, that is my version of church. You know, and I think it might sound, it probably comes across to people in almost like a weird meathead way, but I don't mean it like that. I mean it in, like, a spiritual way. Like, to me, that's, like, a spiritual thing. It's a
1: transcendent experience. You're connected mm-hmm. in that moment, and you feel it. I and mean, I agree completely. Mm-hmm. And music is capable of that transcendental experience. I think people yeah. saying that it's not that way is odd to me. Like, why aren't they connecting yeah. to it in that way and being moved by it? And yeah, music I know what you mean. i heard... Super important.
0: Yeah, I remember. Him, uh, what, I was watching a program once, um, and, and and some guy. He was asked what music he listens to, and he said, "I don't. I don't listen to music. I don't like music." And I thought, "How can you like not like music? That's such like a broad statement. Because surely there's something for everyone." You know, even the most, like, almost, like, <laughs> even if you were just that guy that only listens to, like, one genre or even one band, like, to say to such a blanket statement to say you don't like music, uh, that's like saying you don't like food or something, you know,
1: <laughs> like. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And nowadays, I, I like love, imp- oh, I love like, uh, chill step. I love, uh, okay. mm-hmm. I like, listening to music that has a deep bass and m- melody to it. I love melody.
0: mm yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to like send you some um like folk music or 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 something in Hamilton just like stuff that I listen to and just almost get your opinion on it or something like that. Just something for you to listen to when you've got like a um a spare 10 minutes because I think some of the the old British um you know sort of like Gaelic British sort of folk music is uh some of the most beautiful, like just purely beautiful music you could possibly listen to. Like Insane. So I'd love to like send you some. I'll find a way to. I think Drew's got your contact details. So I'll, I'll find a way to send you some stuff just for when you uh, have a
2: rainy day, safe to speak.
1: Mm. Thank you. Please do. I'd love to love to listen to it.
2: It's awesome as well. Like what we say with music, with um, enjoying like the improvisational nature of music and like uh, when when great musicians jam and everything. Like I know we appreciate that. Me and Karen like jam quite a lot and kind of get into the flow state, get into mm. the zone. And for me, like, in, like with ceremonies um, and watching kind of... And, and being a part of, like, Hamilton ceremonies as well, it's almost like the improvisational flow state of being in a jam mm. with, like, with nature. And it's it's got very rhythmic, very musical elements to that. And it always, uh, like, blows my mind. I remember when you were saying, Hamilton, about... Um, Almost interacting with nature in a certain way, where they will become uh, the the insects and the bugs will become a part of the experience, almost like in a rhythmic nature and like like come in exactly on cues with with points. And it's just like when you go in this almost expanded nature of of, of communication, like it is. It's there's something musical about it. There's something about um, the yeah um, how music can or that rhythmic and um, vibratory. Uh, experience of, of, of like doing that can like almost communicate with like more things around you mm. so yeah I thought that was pretty mad I don't know if you could maybe tell the guys about that How some of your experiences in ceremony with like almost communicating with the other energies around you like, like musically <laughs> yeah it happened last week last week it happened oh, it was wow. amazing we were out in the, in the jungle
1: we were in ceremony and the, first of all I think it starts with a recognition that it can happen and you invite the nature around you to participate, like inviting a bunch of bandmates to participate, like get in on the jam, you know? And so mm. you're, you're asking them to, <laughs> and then you have to dispel your disbelief or suspend your disbelief that it could even happen. And then, mm. uh, and then it, a phenomena starts to happen and you provide them a rhythm, you provide the whole space a rhythm, like the, the insects and the frogs and the birds and everything are all around us. Right. So they're all there and mm. you provide a rhythm to the ceremony. And once the rhythm gets going, it could be a rhythm like this. This really simple, you know, maybe like 120, 160 BPM. Um, and you start to then give a melody to it. The other animals will start to participate. And the... The crickets will, will come in on syncopated rhythms. The frogs will provide accents. And even when you come <laughs> to a beautiful. stop, a yeah, when you come to a stop, <laughs> like things will happen. And, and in yeah. this last week, it was phenomenal because there was also, a. Uh, it happens here a lot where it's raining somewhere else, but it's thundering where you are. So you don't have the mm. rain yet. You just have the thunder and some flashes of light. And so, um, there was these, this frog and this bird that were playing in, inside the ikaros, And when we'd come to like a lull, they would come out and start to to share their song as part of it. And then on two or three occasions where we would come to a stop in the Icaro itself, I would call to the thunder. And right when we stopped in that silence, the thunder would hit. Boom! Like,
2: mm. <laughs> you know, like
1: this huge, like huge exclamation point to the... Like, you know some like huge effect at the end of it and so it seemed like the whole thing was synced and it's a musical phenomena if you don't believe it you got to come experience it because it's it, it is actually true it's mind-blowing that you could be in sync with nature and that nature could participate in your creation of nature. jam yeah. i yeah.
0: I love that I love how that that whole sort of idea of like almost like nature suddenly being in harmony and almost like joining in and I think that's the difference like you know there's there's different ways of doing music and you hear lots of like big you know, very successful bands, they are like song bands. And what I mean by that is like they they are very good at like learning a a very specific piece of music and then playing that over and over again, which is of course what a song is. And then you have other musicians that maybe aren't so good at that or don't choose to do that. But what they are good at, as you said, is almost whether you want to call it as like a jam. And there's this weird thing where you can connect with certain people um, and get into this weird flow state and you're sort of reading each other and it's going back and forth and it's exactly what you're explaining but you're explaining on a wide level you're saying almost like the animals getting into it and everything and I, and I freaking love that <laughs> even as a concept let alone as like an actual reality but um but you know even just with between people the idea that you can do this and you're just like feeling and adding to it it's like there's this there's this conversation going on but it's not verbal conversation mm. and just even the idea of that or the ability that we can tap into it is is oh, I just love that I mean that in itself like blows my mind. It's just beautiful.
1: Yeah, I think that flow state is what we're talking about, right? Like,
0: yeah. you connect
1: with others in an extraordinary way. It's a supernatural way. It's a flow state way. It's a higher dimensional way. However you want to describe that phenomena, but you guys flow together, and mm. and you're in sync, and mm. that happens jamming, and it it happens because of the music. It, the mind yeah. frees itself from the clock, and you move mm. into the the rhythms and the the music of the and the flow of of the instruments and the sounds that you're making. And it's the same with yeah. with nature. But like I say it starts with welcoming nature to enter that flow with you. I think nature's yeah. in that flow and it's we're the ones who decide to be in a different flow. So when we actually Yeah, no, 100% like we, we take ourselves out of it, a bit, don't uh, we? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is the rhythm of the night. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I just thought that was on my mind so much. I just had to say that then. Um, um, Drew, did you want to talk a little bit, ask some questions about your more like your in-depth ayahuasca I, stuff? I just had it was al- it was day.
2: almost like a personal question. Mm. Um, but my experiences with um. Uh, you know kind of ayahuasca experience. i should have asked this in on the academy calls actually but like um it really interests me when i hear about people's experience about going into vision and it's more like um a, a lucid like space that you can go into where you can see other people or, or or visions of your life almost like a dream of your life and and all of that kind of thing like i've never experienced anything Uh, Like that, for me, it's always been like pure, like geometric, like a geometric ride in in nature, you know, and um, like pure visionary, like pure visionary, but like very geometric colors. And I'm just and I know you spoke a few times about almost like going through the vision and um and i'm thinking ah have i not actually kind of been through the vision yet and actually got is it like through those geometric patterns and everything that you would come out to the other side and then have those more experiences like it's almost like i'm just i'm just experiencing the onset and then and then not actually broke through into the vision where you can i know you say like you can imagine like going to the sea and then you're in the sea and like the seas all around you and all this kind of stuff like um Cause I find those aspects like really interesting and, but I haven't actually got there yet or been shown it. It's just been like pure geometric ride of just like, whoa, you know? Um, yeah. So that's that.
1: Yeah. There's a number of, I guess, categories of visions, right? So there's where people see all the ge- geometric colors in 2d there, when they see them in 3d and then where they're in them immersed in them, that's like kind of seeing them in like 4d and then there's this phenomena where they form tunnels or or portals or gateways into other uh visionary states and people express when they go through those they really do feel like they got transported beyond the body and beyond witnessing um, just the geometric patterns and they end up in a true state of other whether it's like I say, being in the sea, in the ocean, whether it's being underwater, whether it's somewhere out in outer space or another star system, those are, or even becoming a tree. Like they talk about shape shifting into uh, other forms. So I don't know if it, if you've yet to get there, but um, those are the experiences that people describe.
2: Mm. Yeah, I've definitely um like felt like the merging with nature and almost becoming other things or like becoming a complete part of it. But it always interests me to that you know, but people could almost live out uh, aspects and scenarios that have happened in the- in their past, or uh, you know, actual like direct communication with other you know people and things like that. But um, yeah, I haven't got there fact, so I think I've got to, got to move through the tunnel and-, and keep going with it, and have that as an intention of like I want to experience that. Um, I think yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Another one I was going to ask as well, like. Um, about um there's there's a guy called graham hancock that i I, mm. I really like and he talks a lot about prehistory and and you know we touched on it earlier with like the origin of the human species and everything and like he's had visions in his ayahuasca experiences of like um uh like like past civilizations and neanderthals and and also like alien interaction and that and it's such a it's such an interesting area for me this idea of like you know when we expand our consciousness we can actually communicate there's no there's no um there's no space between us and other so we can have these direct communications with like higher forms of consciousness and that so i was going to ask you if you've ever had any visions of um like anything in history or like like seen it um you know of like of like a time period in you know as, as a direct visionary experience and then also about like kind of the alien encounters if you've... Because I, I was in my... I, I love this idea of like we were actually seeded here by, by, by an alien like civilization, you know, that that's where the missing link is. So I was hoping that was what you're going to say earlier. But yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, so I was just wondering about those if you would mind talking about it.
1: I think opening up deep history is fascinating. And you can ask the earth in these altered states to share with you its history. There's, I think, only one history. There's the true history. And then a lot of people tell stories. So I think we have to go into the altered state, connect with Earth, and ask Earth to show us Earth's history. And in that, you can have many, many fascinating journeys. And once you set that intention to go on that kind of journey into history, you'll see uh, all sorts of evolutionary phenomena associated with Earth. And it is common to see earth being interacted with by, uh, presences, consciousness beings from other parts of the universe, non-physical. I've never seen like a spaceship or something like that. So I can't, Mm -hmm. I can't fulfill those, uh, desires for anyone out there, but (laughs) I've seen influence. I've seen things Mm -hmm. that represent influence of, uh, other forms of consciousness to earth and transformations that have happened in the past. And, uh, those are visionary experiences. It's hard to be able to say that that's a fact or not a fact. So I've heard of Graham Hancock's um, you know theories, and I think those he's are a fascinating. Theories. Guy. Yeah, he's a fascinating yeah. guy. I agree. I think those yeah, are theories, yeah. and they're being corroborated by a lot of people who have those experiences, which could lead yeah. to more evidence and potential understanding about it. So I've seen yeah. I've seen those kinds of things, and maybe it is part of the missing link. I'm I'm willing to speculate at that point that uh, what ultimately bird humans Mm. on in their evolution was influenced from something beyond earth itself. That could be very Mm. real, but we don't have evidence for it. We have visionary experiences. And I think it's important to highlight that, that there's a lot of people out there telling you because of a visionary experience, that's how it is. And I don't think that that's good science. I think good science Mm. is to say, okay, we have another data point. There's another person Mm. who had that kind of a vision, but we don't have any other evidence for it yet. Um, But it is fascinating to me and I'm open. I I like to start the debate, though, with humans know a lot less about the planet than more.
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. They
1: they know a lot less. So we Mm -hmm. as a collective, sadly, know a lot less about what's really going on. And we have a four or five billion year history to look at. And Mm -hmm. when you get into deep history, it's it, it gets really glossed over instead of being very granular. So, like, mm-hmm. yesterday's history is very granular. Like, this thing happened and that happened and this person said this and that person said that. But in deep history, they're like, oh, well, over, you know, 20 million years or over 200 million years. Uh, you know, imagine 200 million years compared to, like, three decades yeah. or four decades of your history, right? They just gloss over yeah. everything. We have no idea what happened during that time.
0: Yeah, again, I love your measured and reasonable approach to it, um, Hamilton. And I think, you know... It, it adds credence to everything that you do say and everything that you actually do believe in. Mm. Um, I would love to speak to you for another two hours, but we actually have to get out of here because of sort of like time constraints. Um, Is there anything that you'd like to tell like your UK audience on the radio or anything before, before we say our farewells? Or like any message or anything that you would just like to get out there at all, anything?
1: Yeah, I think that if you're interested in these kinds of conversations, I just think it's really important to know you're not alone. And a lot of us are explorers, not just seekers, but explorers in consciousness and in our imagination and mind. And to embrace yeah. that in our lives, it's an incredible part of our life to be able to be imaginary and also rational and grounded and sound in our reasoning. Mm. And that we don't have to be in one camp or another. We can bring a rational understanding and message to, to what we're thinking about. But that it's fun to explore the mind and it's fun to explore what our earth is and the phenomena that it uh, holds for us. And it makes life special and dynamic. And so if you feel that, know you're not alone. And, you know, at the beginning of the show, I talked about the mystery school. Know that there's, there's actual groups and communities out there who are exploring this. And if you want to, you can be part of ours. And um, that it's a special thing to get to explore the mysteries of the universe and be alive at this period of time. And uh, if you're interested in community, join us. And, you know, I just really appreciate everyone who's exploring these ideas.
0: Well, thanks very much, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show again, coming on Pandora's mm-hmm. Box and on, on AW Radio. Um, and I appreciate it as well just, uh, you know, not you, just you coming on, but the, the work that you're doing in, in life. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I keep doing you and keep doing everything that you're doing. Um, and hopefully
2: we can talk again um, in the not-too-distant future, man.
0: Oh, fantastic.
2: Thank you so much, Hamilton.